0: Welcome to the All Things Protest podcast, presented by Kroll & Morty. I'm Christian Curran, and with me today is my guest, John Baker, a partner in Kroll's Government Contracts Group. John is here today for a discussion on a somewhat non-traditional topic, Other Transaction Authority, or OTAs. John has extensive background counseling clients on OTAs, as well as a robust protest practice at both GAO and the Court of Federal Claims, making him the perfect guest to discuss the interplay of these issues. Thanks for being here today, John. Thanks for having me, Christian. So John, federal government use of OTAs is steadily increasing, and we know it's important to understand in what situations OTAs are used and how a party's protest rights could be affected when an agency utilizes an OTA to fill its procurement needs. So with that, we'll dive right in. John, can you give our listeners a brief overview of what exactly an OTA is?
1: I think I'm going to recast your question, Christian. I think that it's a lot easier to explain what an OTA is not than what an OTA is. An OTA is not a procurement contract. It's not a grant, and it's not a cooperative agreement. Anything outside of the bounds of those three things is generally, and I guess it would also potentially not cover a CRADA as well, but anything outside of that could be considered potentially another transaction agreement. It's important to note that. Only certain agencies have the authority to issue OTAs. There are a number of agencies, most notably DOD, NASA, Department of Energy, Department of Homeland Security, and a handful of other agencies all have authority to issue OTAs, and there are different types of OTAs as well. And you have to look at the statutory authority for each of those agencies to understand what types of OTAs that particular agency has authority to issue. So for example, there are research type OTAs and there are prototype OTAs. Not every agency has authority to issue a prototype OTA for example. So they're very flexible agreements and again, they're ones that are generally characterized by what they are not. They are not procurement contracts, they are not grants, and they are not cooperative agreements.
0: Well, thanks for clearing that up. I think that makes a lot of sense. So how, John, does an OTA differ from those things that it's not? How does it differ from a regular procurement contract?
1: Sure. So first and foremost, um, for procurement contracts, an OTA is not subject to the FAR, like a procurement contract would be. If you're talking about grants, OTAs are not subject to the grant regulations or the regulations that would apply to both grants and cooperative agreements. What that means is that the terms and conditions of an OTA can be very flexible. I say can be because they're not always, but there's at least the ability there for an agency to deviate from provisions that if it's operating under the FAR for example it may not be able to deviate from. So for example in procurement contracts there are relatively strict rules that are governing rights and technical data and computer software. In OTAs OTAs are not subject to those same sets of rules and so the agencies and the OTA recipients can negotiate, I'll say, non-standard types of provisions that you likely would never see in a FAR-based contract.
0: Okay. So that's a good point. Are there other advantages that agencies derive from the use of an OTA that makes it an attractive vehicle for them to use?
1: Sure. So there are beyond flexible terms and conditions, which I think is really probably the most notable advantage of using OTAs. Another one is faster contracting cycles. So there's one government entity that publicizes a 60 to 90 day timeframe from issuance of a solicitation to the award of the OTA. That includes submission of white papers, meetings with potential OTA recipient, evaluation of the white papers, submission of proposals, evaluation of the proposals, and the award. I will say even with that particular entity that 60 to 90 days doesn't always happen, but it is something that is not terribly unusual to see in the OTA world. And then again, as I mentioned initially, the flexibility in negotiating um, non-standard, when I say non-standard, I should say terms and conditions that are unlike what you would see in the FAR DFARS. So you can avoid many of the strict FAR DFARS rules under an OTA. And, and what this does is it helps to encourage a lot of companies that are non-traditional contractors, ones that, you know, may ordinarily be a little skeptical of doing business with the government because of many of the onerous FAR and DFARS provisions. Under an OTA, they may be more willing to sign up to a government agreement in order to maybe take some funding and develop a prototype, for example, that the government needs that may also have a commercial application. And the government likes this as well.
0: Right. Well, it seems to make a lot of sense given that they're you know, going outside the box and, and not applying the traditional mm-hmm. rules there that you get that flexibility for folks that haven't been in the space before. <laughs> that's great. So, John, it, it sounds like with that flexibility, the timeframes are a little different for these procurements. We might be dealing with things that are more loosely bound by, or by less rules. So what does an OTA competition really look like?
1: Yeah, so I should say, first of all, not all OTAs are competed, right? But when there is a competition for an OTA, they look very different than what you would normally see in a FAR Part 15 procurement, for example. So typically, what happens is the agency is going to issue or circulate a list of research topics amongst either publicly or in the event that an OTA has been issued to a consortium and the consortium is running the competition those research topics generally would only be issued to the consortium members. Those interested participants, whether they be consortium members or companies in general, will then submit a white paper for consideration by the agency. And then the government's going to look at those white papers and figure out, okay, well, you know, is this a particular research topic or a type of prototype that we may ultimately be interested in funding? And the government will then select whatever white papers it determines that it likes. From that point, then, there's typically some type of an RFP that goes out, but typically only to those companies that have submitted white papers the government has selected. Companies are then going to submit proposals, and the government will select the proposals, again, that it likes, and then will negotiate on the individual OTA terms and conditions. And again, unlike some procurement contract competitions, it frequently is a true back and forth negotiation with a lot more ability by both sides to negotiate those terms and conditions. And at that point in time, the government is going to then make its award. If the OTA has been issued under a consortium, the government will award to the consortium who then will in turn make the award to the project recipient. If it's a direct OTA award from the government to the participant, then that OTA will be directly between the government and, and the company
0: that received the OTA. Got it. So given the kind of non-traditional nature of the way these are competed and awarded, where can you protest, and, and under what circumstances can you protest an OTA?
1: Sure, so first of all, when you think of protests in the far world, you're thinking of a handful of forums, and that's generally at least where you look to first for OTA relief, but there are some very important differences. So first, with respect to agencies, some agencies have their own internal procedures for handling OTA protests. So if you're interested in going and protesting the agency, I would look to the particular agency and the particular terms of whatever the RFP or the solicitation may have looked like for that particular OTA to see whether those procedures are identified. Second, you potentially have an option to go to GIO. GAO generally lacks jurisdiction to hear challenges to OTA awards in the sense that, like in a traditional FAR Part 15 or FAR Part 8 protest filed at GAO, you have the ability to challenge the reasonableness of the agency's award decision, for example, right? right? Did the agency follow the terms of its solicitation? GAO generally lacks jurisdiction to hear those types of protests when it comes to OTAs. But GAO does have jurisdiction to review protests where the protester is alleging that an agency is improperly using a non-procurement instrument, which would include OTAs, to procure goods or services. And in fact, earlier this year, GAO issued a decision concerning the award of an OTA, finding that GAO did have jurisdiction to hear timely protests that an agency is improperly using its other transaction authority. So in that regard, if an agency does go outside the bounds of its statutory authority for issuing another transaction, GAO will hear those types of protests. Beyond agency level and and GAO protests, however, I think there are a lot of open questions. There's certainly an open question as to whether the Court of Federal Claims will take jurisdiction over a protest challenging the award of an OTA. And also, I suppose there's an open question as to whether the district courts, the U.S. district courts, will have Scanwell jurisdiction over protests of OTAs. We'll see. I think that's one area where we may start to see some litigation unless Congress acts first to clarify the court's jurisdiction.
0: Absolutely. And we'll certainly be keeping our eyes out for those first test cases as they come down the pipe. So, John, are there any developments on the horizon that our listeners should be watching out for with regard to OTAs?
1: Well, Christian, it's, I guess, a little hard to say. I mean, Congress has been very active in recent years on expanding the authority, at least in the area of prototype OTs. And so it is possible that we may see further action from Congress to further encourage the use of OTs going forward. Also, as OTs have been used more and more expansively within various agencies, and in particular within DOD. It is also possible we may start to see guidance, whether it be internal guidance to the agency or guidance that might be published more broadly to government contractors and the public on how to use the OTs, the proper use of OTs, perhaps even some sample clauses. I'm not sure whether we're going to see that, but that is a possibility.
0: Great. Well, thanks, John. This has been very informative, and we'll be sure to keep our eyes out for new developments in the OTA arena as things move forward. That concludes our discussion for today. If you have any questions on OTAs, feel free to reach out directly to John or your regular Kroll and Mooring lawyer who can put you in touch. As always, thanks for listening. The All Things Protest podcast is presented by Kroll and Mooring and hosted by Olivia Lynch, Rob Sneckenberg, and Christian Curran. You can find the materials discussed today on Kroll.com or on our blog, the Government Contracts Legal Forum.